Hello and welcome to the Rhodes Climate Leadership Series with current Rhodes Scholars interviewing Rhodes alumni about their work in the climate space. My name is Linjuko Zafiro, French Kamiwala, and I'm a 2020 Rhodes Scholar from the United States studying an MSc in Nature, Society, and Environmental Governance. I am super, super excited to be joined by fellow Rhodes Scholar Rihanna Gunwright, Illinois and St. John's 2013. Rihanna is the current Director of Climate Policy at the Roosevelt Institute. She has previously worked with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as an author of The Green New Deal, was a policy director for New Consensus and policy director for Abdul Al-Sayed's 2018 Michigan gubernatorial campaign. In 2013, Rhodes Scholar Rihanna has also worked as the policy analyst for the Detroit Health Department, was a Miriam K. Chamberlain Fellow of Women and Public Policy at the Institute for Women's Policy Research, and served on the policy team for former First Lady Michelle Obama. Thank you so much for joining us, Rihanna, and I'm super, super excited to be in virtual community with you. Yeah, no problem. It's really lovely to meet you finally. I know. I feel as I've been perpetually just inspired by the great work that you're doing, and I have to just put it out there that you're one of the reasons that I applied for the Rhodes Scholarship and actually am a part of St. John's College. That's so nice. I'm glad I could do that because I remember being like, oh, if I could just find one person that seemed remotely like me this would be a lot less terrifying. Well, I would love to jumpstart into some of these questions that I'm really, really excited to hear um, your insight on. So maybe it'd be a bit helpful for our audience here today to learn a little bit more about you. So who is Rihanna and what led you to the climate space? Who is Rihanna? That, I haven't, no one's asked me that question. My first answer is like, Rihanna's a clown. Like I am always goofing off. Um, and making jokes. Um, but yeah, I think in more concrete terms, I'm a Chicagoan, I'm from Chicago, recently moved back to Chicago um, because I am also a mother-to-be. I'm pregnant at the moment um, and tired. <laughs> uh, and I'm also a policy I don't I don't want to say like a policy expert but like I'm a I'm a public policy professional that is what I do in my life I've been working in policy for working or studying policy for about the last 10 years um started in social policy uh, did some health policy now work on the Green New Deal, which is sort of an intersection between social policy, environmental policy, and, and economic policy. That's who I am. I'm ultimately a person that just desperately wants things to be better uh, and feels really responsible to being as good of an ancestor as I can be and to having a, a decent time while doing it. Well, I know how uh, how influential the Green New Deal has been um, on a domestic, but also international scale. So I'd love for, for you to let the audience know a little bit more about the Green New Deal, uh, where it came about, what it stands to accomplish, and where it's at right now. So the Green New Deal is an idea that has come up in like a lot of iterations over time. I want to say it was first talked about in the 90s. Um, the economist Friedman once wrote about a Green New Deal. 
the Green Party has put out a version of a Green New Deal. And it's an interesting, it's an idea that's like come up, but it's taken different flavors um, depending on who introduced it and what it was, what the time frame, what the context was around it. So the Green New Deal that we were most um, inspired by was actually one that was proposed by a British think tank uh, right after the financial crisis. And that Green New Deal was really focused on financialization, like the roles that banks and financial policy was playing in exacerbating um, climate change in a way, and the ways that like turning away from that sort of financialization could help rebuild what people call the real economy, which is essentially the economy that's based on building things, making things, anything in the economy that's not based on um, making money out of money, right? Like that's not based on what folks in finance often <laughs> are, are doing. Um, and so and so that was something that we were really um, inspired by. And so the Green New Deal that I've worked on and that's really taken hold in the US is essentially a proposal for an economic mobilization um, on the scale of the mobilization in World War II um, to tackle climate change, to address climate change, and to do so in a way that creates millions of good paying jobs, that redresses historic inequities, and that rapidly decarbonizes um, in line with the targets um, set out by various scientists, including like the IPCC report. Um, and um, we talk about it often as being at the intersection of jobs, justice, and climate. Um, and it's really sort of the Green New Deal and the public imagination in the states really kicked off with the sit-in and Speaker of the House, uh, Nancy Pelosi's office, uh, where Representative Ocasio-Cortez showed up, and that was led by Sunrise. And since then, it's become, it's interesting, it started out as a proposal, and now it is like a proposal. It is a movement. There are, there's a, a movement for a Green New Deal. Um, and it's become, it's become like a lot of things. It's become a set of principles that like lead uh, climate policy development. Um, and it's also increasingly become um, sort of like an economic recovery, like a blueprint for an economic recovery plan that say like the Biden-Harris administration is pulling off of. Something that I hear um, often about the Green New Deal and the climate justice movement in general, um, a major critique that I hear is that um, oftentimes people say that the principles and frameworks that we're trying to work upon are just too broad to really make climate progress in the way that we need right now. But you argue that an intersectional approach is really, really important and is a strength to help build broad coalitions that include people from all different walks of life. So I'd love for us to talk a little bit more about how dimensions of intersectionality from decolonization to racial justice um, are crucial to the climate movement and to the objectives of the Green New Deal and everything that um, these, these frameworks work upon. Yeah, totally. Um, so I, I'll be honest, like I 
knew about the climate crisis for probably at least since I've been in college, maybe earlier in high school. Uh, and I, I had friends who were involved in like divestment campaigns in college or uh, invested in environmental policy, but it never, I was never particularly interested or drawn to it because it seemed quite honestly, like a very elite, very white cause to me. Um, I was focused on social policy and like my early, especially then I was really focused on welfare policy, um, on policies related to poverty. Um, and, you know, even as time went on, that's still sort of the lens that a lot of my policy work was happening through. And so I was like, I'm talking about people being able, like women being able to afford childcare so that they can take care of their families. I'm talking about how do we reform welfare policy that, so that women are not penalized for going to college. These are the things that I'm talking about. I don't know what a solar panel is gonna do. Um, it was those sorts of things. It just seemed very remote and and I think the Green New Deal was one of the first times where I understood both how close it was and how it linked to so many of the things that I had seen in my life, like exponential rates of asthma, right? In communities that I worked in or in my own community, figuring out that like one of the reasons I likely had asthma as a child was because of environmental pollution. And the fact that uh, polluting facilities are disproportionately cited in, um, in Black and Latinx and Indigenous areas, right? Um, figuring out that it's not even enough to say, like, class can't protect you. Middle class Black people are exposed to more pollution than poor white people, right? And at least in the U.S. And so all of those things actually made me want to be engaged. And it also made me realize that it would also likely make other people want to be engaged. As in my lifetime, when I was growing up, there wasn't a lot of political will around it. And still that will is growing, but you're up against some of the like richest and most powerful corporations on earth who make money right, because of fossil fuels who make money essentially by making the climate crisis worse. And so to overcome that, especially in a, in a country where there's so much money has such a hold on politics, you need people, you need large movements. And as long as there is not, the climate crisis is not painted in ways that include environmental justice, is not painted in ways where we're actually talking about uh, immigration policy and what that means when we have climate refugees, as long as we're not talking about, um, you know, how it's connected to uh, policing, right, and the ways that now there's all of these new laws where they're trying to um, 
make it illegal to protest at fossil fuel sites. And thinking about the ways that police can be deployed and the criminal justice system can be used in these instances, you won't actually be able to gather enough power. And so intersectionality is incredibly important, both in making sure that you actually have the people power to get things done, but also in telling the full truth about the climate crisis. The other thing that I want to talk about, which I kind of hear you moving into, is the importance of, uh, you know, building broader coalitions with existing movements. I feel as though a lot of the language um, that is being talked about with the Green New Deal, with a just climate future, it really does resemble an abolitionist framework. And unfortunately, I haven't really heard those connections being made in a really mainstream context. And I wanted to know if you had any thoughts as to why that is, and even thoughts as to what the power of this movement could be if we linked arms with abolitionists and folks that have for so long understood what it means to conceptualize a, ju a truly just future absent of a carceral landscape. Yeah, 100%. I actually um, did an interview about that. I don't remember how long ago, at least a few months ago. <laughs> And I do a lot of interviews and, you know, I did it and it was one of the only ones that like got traction because it got mocked. Like it got mocked by like Glacius and like some, some like right-wing folks because people are like, see, this is a bridge too far. They're just saying the Green New Deal includes everything because I had said that like, there are clear connections between sort of the a Green New Deal worldview and framework uh, and proposal and abolition, right? Because like you said, it's just like you said, these are both rooted in the idea of how do we imagine a just future, even if we don't know exactly how to get there right now, right? The ways that we know that the carceral state guards property and works for um, folks who really own capital and, and own property and is used to delineate who goes where, um, right? Like that has very clear connections to climate and, is, and especially to when you think about what can happen in a world where resources are getting more and more scarce. What, what is the role of the, of the, of the police become, right? Um, and, um, and also like the carceral state as it relates to immigration, right? The ways that we've seen immigrants treated by ICE and put in camps and separated from their families, right? Some of those, a lot of those immigrants are already climate refugees, right? So what happens when there are more climate refugees? What does that system do? Um, and I think a lot of the hesitancy to have those conversations comes back to that fear um, of being accused of going too far. And I think that that is really, that is like a real thing that keeps a whole lot of things from being said, uh, not just related to the Green New Deal, but in general. For sure. And I don't know if this is too much of a jumping point into the realm of uh, what could potentially happen, but let's work on something first. 
Um, let's talk about crime reparations. So for me, when I think about what is necessary for a just climate future, there is a need for accountability and wealth distribution. And uh, I believe that crime reparations is absolutely a part of that solution. However, again, the same way that intersectionality is questioned about its place in the climate space, I think climate reparations, even though it's not, as you know, it's not a new term, it still is looked at um, as a as a far off possibility at best. So what are your thoughts about climate reparations? Is it something that's necessary for the justice that we're looking for? So honestly, I've never even heard that term before. I certainly have talked about and learned about just carbon accounting or just carbon budgeting. That means that countries have to be responsible for their share of carbon. And there's thus um, an impetus, say for this for the states, to clean up faster and decarbonize faster um, than the rest of the world in order to like free up the the carbon budget for in particular developing countries um, who need more time or who still have more growth to do. Um, and so um, I've heard about that, but I've never heard about climate reparations. And I'll say that like fair carbon accounting is still in, in like in the DC context still seen as like wild. People are like, that's a nice thought. And you're like, actually, it's not really a nice thought because what we're saying is that like, we're borrowing other people's time. For the time that we delay, if we decided we don't have to do anything to 2050, other people in other countries are going to die for us to take that time. So it's actually not just a nice to have, there is a cost to us not moving faster that is very real. I think we have reached near the end of the conversation, but I did want to change up near the end of the conversation because I find myself on a lot of panels or interviews where the last question or last couple questions center on hope. And I've always really struggled with that um, because I think that hope in general isn't necessarily the most important, I wouldn't say the most important, but the most influential driver for action. I think hope is something that's often earned after doing action, but more often I'm usually angry about a lot of things and that's what gets me um, up in the morning and what keeps me in the climate movement, which is a movement that isn't a lot of fun work a lot of the times. It's really heartbreaking uh, work. And I, I love to know um, about some of the emotions that drive you to remain in this space other than hope. The things that are wrong will continue to be wrong whether or not I decide to work on them. If I decide tomorrow, like, this is too hard, I don't wanna do this anymore, it will still continue. And so I have a choice to either have it continue and not do anything and be frustrated or be frustrated and work on it. What has to be done has to be done. Whether or not you're winning, whether or not you're losing, the work still has to be done. I'm, I'm gonna have 
an uncomfortable feeling about it either way. I've never been the kind of person that can see something like that and not have it bother me. I have often wished to be that kind of person. <laughs> I've often wished that like things outside of my own little bubble didn't bother me so much, but they do. And since I know this about myself, I'm really playing myself if I think that if I just turn my back, those emotions will be shut off because that's not how it's going to work. Um, so I might as well, to me, it's like, well, you might as well. That is really a lot of what drives it. Might as well. Uh, hopefully um, this conversation has provided some insight to everyone that's watched. I've definitely learned so much from your insights and how open and honest and authentic that you are as a person and a leader, but also in this conversation. So I really appreciate the time that you've uh, given to me and the audience. And I'd lastly like to ask you, is there anything that I missed or anything that we didn't discuss that you think is important to, to leave us all with? No, I mean, I think we've discussed a lot. I just want to leave everyone with like, good luck, Wawa. I think you'll probably be in your second year. Good luck. And thank you for all that you do.